Mac Power Users, episode 587, catching up with Casey Liss. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks. I am joined today by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. How are you today, Stephen? I'm good, David. How are you? I am fantastic, and I'll tell you why later. But uh, we are the Mac Power Users. We're here to talk about how to get the most out of your Apple technology. And we've got a guest with us today that we have not talked to now for nearly three years. Welcome back, Casey Liss. Well, hello. Has it been almost three years? My word, I don't feel like it was that long. Goodness. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's crazy, right? Uh, time flies when you've got pandemics going on. <laughs> or Something having fun. Like that. I don't know. But I know, uh, Casey, that you are an interesting guy. You, you're a software developer. You've got multiple applications in the App Store. You, for, you were a contract developer for a while, right? And then you worked for a company that did uh, Mac and iPhone development of apps. And then you went out on your own. Congratulations, by the way, on that. Well, yeah, thank you. That was uh, in no small part to the two of you. Um, when we were all at Mike's uh, bachelor party slash stag do or whatever he calls it, um, which was, gosh, in three years ago now, in 2018, um, mm-hmm. I was kind of kicking around the idea of going independent. And, it, and because of the conversations I had with the two of you gentlemen and, and some of the other folks that were there, that was really the gust of wind or the gale of wind, perhaps, that I needed b- behind my back to, to, to compel me to jump off the proverbial cliff and give it a shot. And at the time, I had told myself, well, you know what? You know, my kid was what? What was he then? He was like four at the time, um, my elder kid. And, and so I thought, well, you know, if I can last till he's in kindergarten, you know, I'll, I'll consider that successful. And then my reach goal will be, and or was at the time, you know, if my younger kid, if, if uh, Michaela could last until she's in kindergarten, then at that point, you know, once the both kids are out of the house, then whatever, if I have to get a jobby job again, so be it. And sure enough, Declan is rounding out his kindergarten year downstairs because pandemic, but nevertheless, he's rounding out his kindergarten year as we speak. So, uh, yeah, in that sense, it's been successful. And, uh, and I have the two of you gentlemen to thank amongst many other people for encouraging me to take the plunge. So thank you. You know, it's funny how the years fly once you go out on your own. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm coming up on six and the, um, you just kind of lose track of it. And the other thing, I don't know if you've got to this point yet, but I feel like I'm unhirable at this point because <laughs> I like having control over my, you know, what I do so much that it would be very difficult for me to go back to a job where I've got to go to somebody else's meeting and you know deal with all that stuff. You know, it's funny you say that. So I, I like to think that I am not unhirable. However, I will tell you in my next breath, that my afternoon naps that I'm getting more more days than not, I would really miss out on that if I had to go somewhere and do a real job. <laughs> it, granted, they're only like a 15-minute power snooze, but man, that's a real nice pick-me-up in the middle of the day. And I don't know that that would go so well if I just went to a corner of some office and snoozed for a few minutes every afternoon. So I'm probably more unemployable than I like to think, but I, I'm, I'm trying to, to remind myself and tell myself that at any moment, you know, all this could go away. And obviously I'm doing what I can to prevent that, but nevertheless... At any moment, all this could go away and I might have to get a real a real job again. And so I'm trying to remind myself not to completely lose touch with all that is corporate life. Um, and, and, and we'll see how well that goes. Or actually, I guess hopefully I'll never see how well that went. But, you know, I'm, I'm trying to keep my options open if need be. And that's the funny thing is the way the stress switches. Because like when I remember in the years leading up to my exit that 
I would wake up in the morning thinking today's the day I'm going to quit my job. <laughs> you know, it's just like, <laughs> it started to like get to me. And I don't think now I just think when I wake up in the morning, what do I need to do today to keep this lifestyle? You know, yeah, I'm never yeah. going to get rich doing what I'm doing, but I'm going to be okay. And what do I need to do to, so I can keep doing this for the rest of my life? Because uh, for me, I mean, the the love affair with self-employment is, is just continued. And um, like I was looking at one of those forums late recently, I signed up for a web service. And they're like, what's your dream job? And I'm like, I have my dream job. I mean, I'm <laughs> yep, doing yep. the things I love to do. I mean, how lucky am I? You know, so I hope you have that experience as well. Yeah, so far it's been it's been tremendous, and being able to be here for the kids, you know, while they're still here has been has been really great. And having the increased flexibility during this most unprecedented times over the last year uh, has been really fantastic as well. And it's funny because you know, in the same way that you just said, you know, I'll never be rich doing this. You know, I I I think all three of us have made a very very good and honest living doing what we do. But by any classical definition, you know, we are certainly not rich. I'm not, you know, I don't have a stable of 15 cars in my garage and I don't have three different homes and so on and so forth. However, it's, it's been phenomenal and it's been telling to realize that my motivations, once I got to the point that I can live a sustainable life and not a fancy life, just a sustainable life, you know, once I got to that point, my motivations became so different. And I would argue that all three of us are impossibly rich, just not in the classical sense, you know, and, and, in that, you know, we get to do what we love and we get to do, do it with people that we love and, and do it on a schedule that we dictate. And, and I don't know if there's anyone richer in the world than the three of us. And, and I'm incredibly thankful for all the people that make that happen for your listeners, for, for my listeners, for our shared listeners, et cetera. So it, it, we're very, very lucky. You're absolutely true. And, and you got that one, right, brother. But, you know, we got you the hippie part early today. That's good. <laughs> you know, that's part of our goal on the Mac Power users. Uh, before we get started, we actually have a couple announcements today. Um, the uh, Thank you, everybody who bought the shirts. We appreciate it. Um, I don't know if by the time I say this, there'll be any mugs left, but we have those cool Yeti mugs. If there are any left, you may want to go check them out. They're, they're exiting quickly. The other thing is we, for more power users today, are going to talk about a new project. My wife and I have decided with both the girls heading back to college and grad school in the fall that we want to do something fun together. So I'm finally making the Disneyland field guide, but I'm doing it differently. I'm just, we're just made a YouTube channel and we're going to make fun YouTubes about things and tricks and like ways to get from the Matterhorn to the haunted mansion during a parade. And and my (laughs) wife and I are making a field guide together and we just started over the weekend and um, it's kind of a fun project to do together, but we're going to talk about that and more power users today, all the, the tech and the planning behind it. But if you're interested in Disneyland, uh, go to DLR field guide on YouTube or DLR field guide on the web and you will, uh, dlrfieldguide.com on the web and you can check out that little project i'm working on and uh i'm not going to talk to casey at all today about disneyland versus disney world because (laughs) we don't have enough time in the day we could really divert this podcast very quickly and i Mm -hmm. what i will say just i'll say one thing on the subject i understand i understand (laughs) that if you grew up going to disney world you would think that is better than disneyland but um and that's okay 
but we all know that objectively Disneyland is better. And with that, we can move on. <laughs> I'm not going to take this bait, but my, my tongue is now made of Swiss cheese. It, it hurts a lot, but I'll be okay. Casey, a lot of water has gone under the bridge since we last had you on the show. And uh, let's just start out talking hardware you're you're still mm-hmm. all in with mac right you're a mac guy yeah yeah so um i don't remember exactly what my setup was when we spoke last but uh, a year and a couple years ago uh, i don't know so after it had been out for a while i got myself an imac pro um, which i'm still using to this day i'm still recording on as we speak uh, last year i got myself i replaced my beloved with no sarcasm my beloved uh, macbook adorable the one port macbook which was slower than dirt when it was new and has only gotten worse since then i i love that machine though i was briefly using it today because now it's aaron's computer and um and i still love that computer but nevertheless i replaced that and i got a uh a 13 inch macbook pro uh around around wwdc time last year um, and we're going to talk about what, what's going on with these in a moment. And then my iPhone is an iPhone 12 pro, uh, not a pro max because I am not a monster with respect, gentlemen. Um, <laughs> and then I'm still rocking the, uh, I believe it was a 2018 iPad pro. Is that right? The first one that had face ID, yep, um, yep. And, and all that. And, and I think we might talk about that here in a minute as well. Uh, I'm, I have very conflicting thoughts and plans with regard to upgrades. Um, and I've been all over the map about that and we, we can talk about that whenever you're ready, but that is the setup today is as iPad or excuse me, I Mac pro for most of my work, iPad pro and MacBook pro for when I'm running about, which obviously isn't happening that much anymore. And then an iPhone 12 pro for, uh, for when I'm doing day-to-day stuff. Yeah. I mean, the, we've talked a lot this year about the m1 and the apple silicon transition but you know this is a topic that is just constantly evolving it seems like every week we get further news on it and i i do think about you because i know that you loved the small and light computer but it was power constrained and it mm-hmm. was port constrained and now it seems like with apple silicon i thought you would have been a natural for the new m1 macbook air because it's kind of close to your your MacBook adorable, but it's got basically the power of that iMac Pro sitting on your desk. I, I mean, know, right? <laughs> you know, I just I, I'm just curious. I mean, but also I think the impression I get is you're sitting on the sideline waiting for Apple to put all its cards on the table, and then probably going to make your choice then. Yep, that's exactly right. So. I do love and did love and do miss my MacBook adorable, but. Did you know, gentlemen, that having only one port on your computer is not delightful? And once you get used (laughs) to having four ports on your computer, that is delightful. And uh, even though I think you're right, David, that on on paper and perhaps even in in reality, the MacBook Air is the right machine for me, um, I feel like it is often enough that I'm plugging multiple things into this MacBook Pro. Like even just the other day, I was um, extracting pictures from Aaron's phone as I do once a month and putting them into our shared photo library. And I have a very bananas and bespoke process by which I do this that no human should ever mimic because it's terrible. But nevertheless, I had my Mac, I was doing this downstairs as we were watching TV. So I had my MacBook Pro hooked up to an Ethernet dongle, hooked up to power, and hooked up to her phone. So that's three different things happening all at once. And yes, we you know with the right dongle, I could I could decrease the amount of ports I needed, but it was nice to just be able to plug three things in and not have to think about it. And 
Uh, because of that, I really feel like I don't want to go backwards with regard to ports. I really don't want to have only two, and I certainly never want to make the mistake of one again. And I did that eyes open last time, but I don't want to do it again. And so you hit the nail on the head. Like, so what am I doing then? Well, right, right now I'm just waiting. I, I haven't yet seen, and there does not exist as we record this, a four port 13 inch MacBook Pro that is M1 powered or M whatever powered, you know, Apple Silicon powered. And once that exists, then I think. I think that might be the first thing that gets upgraded is, is my 13 inch MacBook pro, which is funny because it's the newest of the two machines. Actually, it's the newest machine I have includes except my iPhone. Um, I do really like the look of the new iMacs. They're very intriguing, but in the same way that Steven has been forever ruined by his 39 inch or whatever it is screen, I am <laughs> ruined by my 27 inch screen. And so I feel like I'm in the same boat. Like there is a device in the same class as this iMac Pro that I'm interested in, but there's not a real direct equivalent to the iMac Pro yet. And I'm not even necessarily saying I need a new iMac Pro if it ever exists. I suspect that an, an Apple Silicon powered iMac would be just fine. But nonetheless, I would like to wait until a 27 or, you know, whatever the new equivalent mm-hmm. is comes out before I make any decision. We're definitely just in this in-between time right now, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, hey, Apple's laid the consumer cards down on the table, if you will. And there's definitely more cards to be played. And I think a lot of people in the Mac user audience are probably where you are, where yeah, the M1 is is excellent. Like, I don't want to downplay that at all. My MacBook Pro with the M1, my wife's M1 MacBook Air, they're incredible machines. But a lot of people do need something more, whether it's screen size or RAM capacity or storage capacity, because the M1 has topped out at two terabytes. There's... There's definitely more to go. And so I think in your position, I totally understand why you would wait. Uh, You know, I went from a 16-inch MacBook Pro to the 13-inch MacBook Pro, the two-port. And yeah, there have been times where those two ports have have gotten in the way. And I've needed to figure, like, what, you know, what hub do I need where to make it work? (laughs) And I was willing to do that because it's such a secondary machine for me. But for a lot of people... The the Apple Silicon stuff just isn't quite mature enough or quite high end enough to move just yet. Yeah, and, and we talked about those new iMacs when when Apple made the announcement. But the one of the things I don't think we really emphasized in that show is that as a laptop needs to have a lot of ports. I feel like an iMac should have even more ports. An iMac yep. should be like an octopus uh, with <laughs> ports sticking out the back. And this one, the high-end one, has four. That's the most you're going to get off of this iMac. And to me, that is kind of a non-starter for a computer on my desk because I want to hang a bunch of stuff off of one. And, um, and uh, we'll, we'll get there. I mean, uh, the M1 has limitations as to RAM and ports and no, you know, amount of cool looking computers are going to fix that problem because that's mm-hmm. the way the chip is designed. And I feel like with the next chip, whatever, whether it's called the X1 or the M1X or whatever, I feel like we're going to get more ports. And then I think, so Casey, yeah. sounds to me like you probably going to get a MacBook Pro whenever that new version of the MacBook Pro comes out. Cause that four port thing to me, I think that's going to be the only computer that's going to have four ports on it. Yeah, I think you're right. I think if I were to wager a guess, my future is going to look like this. I will get a new MacBook Pro and whenever, you know, they have the four port 13 inch or 14 inch or whatever it ends up being, uh, I will get that computer, realize it is 
uncomfortably quicker than my iMac Pro. <laughs> and then I'm going to be in a real ugly spot where I'm trying to justify a Pro Display XDR and turn myself into an uh, into a laptop only person. Or maybe I get like a Mac Mini and plug that into a display. Or maybe I'm waiting for the iMac that hasn't arrived yet. But yeah, one way or another, I suspect this is going to be a very expensive year for me with regard to hardware, which is unusual for me. And part of the reason I didn't just immediately upgrade this MacBook Pro Yes, I'm using ports as the excuse, and I think it's a legitimate excuse, but nevertheless, I had just gotten this a year ago, and I'm not the kind of person <clears throat> like Stephen that uh, re- replaces computers every wow. hour, and so I, well, I, I, it's a sunken cost fallacy, right? But like, I feel, I feel like it's, it's inappropriate or wrong for me to upgrade this machine that's, that's not even a year old as I sit here now, but... Uh, as soon as I do upgrade it, which I will, as soon as I do upgrade it to an M1 powered Mac or, you know, whatever the equivalent thereof, I know that I'm going to wonder why I waited so darn long. So I'm, I'm kind of, it's ignorance is list is what it boils down to at the moment. Yeah. Well, what one piece of advice I'd give you on that is, you know, look into selling it, whether it's back to Apple or one of these third party sure. companies mm-hmm. and you will offset a lot of your costs because that, com- that computer still has a lot of value in it. And yep, yep, yep. I've become a lot more willing to do that. Like I, I actually did get a second Mac. I got a little Mac mini and I got just a basic configuration of one because I just needed a computer running on my desk all the time. Some of the stuff I do with my work, I've got somebody here working on my laptop and I'm working on my desktop at the same time. And having just one computer wasn't enough. And, but I bought that computer knowing that I will be selling it back to Apple or to somebody um, at some point when I decide to do whatever I do next. But um, it is exciting times though. and, And it's really fun. I mean, never have we had so many questions unanswered with what we know will be very fun re, uh, answers for us uh, Mac power users, because whatever they do, you know, the M1 was the opening act. That's the slowest one of these things they're ever going to make. Yeah. You know, uh, just imagine the Christmas presents we're going to have to unwrap when they <laughs> when they get to the rest of the line. Yep, it's so true. Uh, the other thing, though, about um, you that I know is that you actually you weren't a big iPad fan, but then when you got the iPad Pro in 2018, uh, it it brought you around a little bit. You got the small one, right? The yeah, I got inch? I got the 11 inch. Um, and you know, my iPad life, I just vacillate back and forth between absolutely loving it and thinking it's a complete toy. Um, right now, I'm closer to toy than loving it. Like I do really enjoy my iPad pro. It is 11 inch. It's a 2018. Like I said, I have an Apple pencil for it. I did have the, the, what is it? The folio keyboard. And then I have since gotten the magic keyboard, which I think has even the magic keyboard over the folio, I think dramatically increased my enjoyment of the iPad. Um, and I do love the iPad, uh, but I, I don't find myself turning to it very often to do I'm going to say real work, but that's more dismissive than I mean it. It's just a lot of times when I'm trying to accomplish something, I'm I'm trying to accomplish something that either the Mac is uniquely better at, or it's something that I'm uniquely better at doing on a Mac, if that makes sense. And I do love it. I think I will always have an iPad. Uh, I, I, I like a lot of things. And actually just uh, this last night, Aaron was doing, my, my wife Aaron was doing some 
annotations. That's what I was looking for. Some annotations to a PDF. And she was just using that, using the Apple pencil to do that. And it was delightful. Like that's, you can't do that easily on the Mac. You can, you know, you can can use preview to do it, or you can, I don't know, his uh, PDF pen uh, sponsoring this episode, but, um, but nevertheless, uh, there are ways you can do it on a Mac, but it's just so delightful to do it on an iPad. And, And I hope and I feel like this is a very you know trendy thing to say these days, but I hope that with each software release, iPadOS becomes ever more powerful and ever less restrictive to someone like me that thinks in a very Mac-oriented way. So that's many words to say. I, I do like my iPad. I will probably always have an iPad, but even though the new iPads look great, I can't say that I have bought one yet, and I honestly don't plan on it. The 2018 is a great machine, even three years on, three years on. So... I'm sticking with this for for now. Yeah, I just I just don't understand why there has been this lag on the iPad. And you know, if you listen to this show or frankly any podcast with nerds on it, <laughs> people have been frustrated because you do see this excellent hardware, you see the opportunities, and then you hit all these little friction points when you try to use it that you know would have been understandable in the first few years but now 10 years into it it's it's kind of shocking that so many of them are still there and yeah um, you know and i feel like we're rolling into wwdc again you know where once again we need table stakes i remember i wrote a post about it on the eve of wwdc two or three years ago about you know how we were all just on our wits at our wits end about the ipad and how you know, so many basic things weren't there. And then the next day they delivered a bunch of it. But then, <laughs> yeah. but then like nothing happened since then. I mean, the, the model hasn't changed. The, you still can't record audio into two apps. You still can't, you know, reliably apply tags. Like a bunch of problems that, that existed just haven't been fixed yet. And yeah, I just wish they would get ahead of this instead of always feeling like they're behind on it. I think that's a really good way of looking at it. It, it, they, it always does feel like the software is lagging so far behind the hardware. And, you know, we're sitting here now between the release of the most recent iPad hardware. And as you said, you know, WWDC, where the most recent software updates will be announced. And it just feels like this is one of those years where the hardware has so far outpaced the software that there's got to be something coming, right? Like there has to be something coming, something big and something different because otherwise, why is there so much hardware on these devices? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I get it. I get it. Don't get me wrong. But but it just seems like, you know, even something as silly as changing the strictly USB-C port to be Thunderbolt and USB-C. Like, uh, yes, I understand you could justify that just because, you know, you want to have consistency across, you know, anything that touches an M1. There's there's a million reasons you can you can do that. But one of the reasons might be you have, I don't know, better external display support coming or you have better support for external hard drives or, or something like that. So I, I really hope and feel and and think that some there's going to be some big iPad news this year. I couldn't tell you exactly what, but my gut tells me this is one of those years, just like you said, David, that something big is coming. One of the the things that's sort of, I think, added to this feeling is when they moved to iPadOS as the name, right? They said, hey, this is going to be more of its own thing. That comes with expectations, right? And Apple surely knew that going into it. But last year was, you know, one of those slow years for the iPad software. And so they may still be in this sort of TikTok that they've been in for now five or six years, but 
I think when they named it, when they gave it its own identity apart from the phone, I started giving it features apart from the phone. Like that, that sets that sets a tone moving forward. And I hope that that's not, you know, something that that Apple didn't mean to do and is kind of leaving people hanging with. I, I'm I'm choosing to be hopeful about this because I think they have done a good job at meaningfully moving iPad OS forward over the years. I mean, if you look at it from five years ago to now, it is much better, but there's still so much low hanging fruit. Yeah. And it's a tough, it's a tough line to walk, right? Because you want to keep some of the greatest benefits of iOS and, and, you know, iPad OS in that it's generally very approachable and generally very predictable and generally very easy to use. But in order to satisfy and satiate someone like a power user, you're going to need to have more flexibility than I think iOS kind of was built for. And certainly than iOS kind of inherently wants to have. Uh, and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, obviously the Mac can go from pretty reasonably usable in a pretty simple way to doing completely esoteric, you know, very power usery sort of things. So it is, it is a line that can be walked, but it is a hard line to walk. And in that sense, I don't envy Apple at all. But that being said, I mean, look at pointer support. I think pointer support in the iPad is phenomenal and is not at all what I would have expected. It was a genuine rethinking of how to make this work for a touch first device. And they, they knocked it out of the park. So they're capable of it. Uh, they just may not be capable of it on the timetable we want. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think part of this for me, at least, is thinking about how do I define success with iPad software? Because I think that's, that's you know, the missing link for so much of this. And now we have an iPad that has memory and RAM that can support logic and maybe, you know, Xcode or Final Cut. But and that's great. So on the high end, we do want pro tools and we want the ability to run them on an iPad. But I feel like success to me doesn't just come with the high end software, but so much of what Casey just called low hanging fruit, you know, the ability to easily move files that, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff on there that is not easy. And I don't necessarily want them to ape what is on the Macintosh. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a different operating system. I like what they did with the pointer. And I know that, you know, rethinking this stuff takes time and I appreciate that, but it's been a long time. And I yeah. feel like that stuff needs to be solved. Like even the multitasking that nobody seems to be able to figure out. And even <laughs> me who makes a podcast about this has to go and refresh myself on how it works sometimes. And, you know, I, I just think that, that stuff needs a lot of effort put into it. And, and I just don't know if they're putting it in or not because there's, it's been so long and so much of it is not fixed. So that that's the kind of stuff I'm really looking for. I mean, the low hanging fruit to me is almost more important than being able to run final cut. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people are thinking about those pro apps because the M one is there, but remember those pro apps require app kit and even pro kit, you know, these, uh, frameworks on the Mac that don't exist on iOS. So I think a reimagining these tools for the iPad and, and its current software development tools and frameworks, like that is going to take more time. I don't think they're just going to pour AppKit, which they're actively trying to move past on the Mac. They're not going to bring that you know, forward in time to the iPad, I don't think. But I agree yeah, with I you, agree. David. It, it's things like multitasking. It, it's things like uh, file management and photo management, things that everyday people do that 
lead to that friction that they've got to address as well. Yep, I very much agree. So Casey, you are a iPhone 12 Pro user. How's that treating you? Well, you know, Stephen, so in the show notes that nobody can see, there's a topic heading that says iPhone, and then there's a bullet beneath that. Broken any lately? And the oh, story no. here, the story here is that uh, for my iPhone 11, was that a Pro? What were they? It was the iPhone 11 Pro, right? Uh, That's what they were calling yes, it at the time. Yes, and I, okay. I love this story because it Because it it's happened. your fault. Because it's your fault. So because it happened I had, because of me. I had gotten my phone that day, and then Aaron and I had gone to basically a state fair for all intents and purposes. And her car was just covered in dust because we parked, you know, in like a, a field somewhere. And I had come home, and I was trying to get a quick wash done on her car. And this was at the same time that the St. Jude podcast-a-thon, the very first St. Jude podcast-a-thon mm-hmm. was happening. And I really didn't want to miss any more than I already had. And so... I tried to play it on my phone and I tried to get my AirPods connected. And for some reason, they just, that just wouldn't work. And I tried something else. I can't remember. I think I tried using it with my, my iPad and that wouldn't work because I thought I'd just set my iPad off to the side and listen to it that way. And so finally, I was like, well, I'm missing this and I'm running out of sunlight and I really got to wash her car. <laughs> and so I just played it on the speaker on my iPhone. And I put my iPhone in my back pocket, which I never do. And Aaron has an SUV and I, and I was in a hurry. And so I jumped up to get the roof of her car to try to clean that. And all of a sudden, I heard something crash. And let me remind you, I'd had this phone for about 12 hours at this point. And sure enough, I shattered the back of it. And so that was my 11 Pro. Fast forward to my 12 Pro. I am still caseless, caseyless, because I do, I just, I really, I was always a case guy, but I love the look of these so much, especially the green and now the blue. I love the look so much and I don't want to cover it with a case. And uh, it has slipped out of my pocket several times, my 12 Pro, never on concrete, never anywhere but in the house. But it slipped out of my pocket once and I picked it up and I looked and sure enough on the back, there's a little, little crack, a little crack and a little bit of spidering. I have no idea how I did it. It dropped from no more than waist height, and sure enough, it is broken too. So the summary from this is don't be caseless, caseyless. I will be getting a case for my next phone. No matter what, I don't care how pretty it is. I'm going back to the case life because I can't do this anymore. It's, it's preposterous. What does it cost these days with Apple Care when you break a phone? I believe it's a hundred dollars to do the back, and they basically just hand you a refurb. Or at least that's the way it was for my eleven. Uh, I haven't tried it with the twelve because I'm basically allergic to the indoors until I'm two weeks post vaccination, and so yeah. I haven't gone to the Apple Store yet. But I, I'm pretty sure it's a hundred bucks, and I'm pretty sure they just hand you a refurb at that point. Yeah, which is you know about what they charge you for a case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of it's six of one, half a dozen the other, right? But anyway, I just thought, Stephen, that you know, first of all, I wanted to yell at you once again for me breaking my prior mm-hmm. phone, which obviously is your fault, while and, while raising <laughs> hundreds of thousands of dollars for a children's yes. hospital, thanks I, to the I mean, generosity of the relay family. That's that's right. what you want to yell at me for? Yeah, yes, yes, exactly right. Okay. Uh, just want to know, clear that up. <laughs> let, let's get our priorities straight. <laughs> that was really well done. I mean, that was really I, well done. I really don't envy your children. I'm just going to say that right now. <laughs> but, Nevertheless, I wanted to, to to jokingly scold you about that, and then I thought you would be amused to hear because I don't think I've said this to anyone yet that I had, uh, that I have broken my second phone in a row now. And uh, my goodness, yeah. So you're you're using it broken. Just uh, mm-hmm. 
I guess there's not glass falling out or anything. No, 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 no. It's actually the last one like had a spider clear across the phone. Uh, this one, it's just it's located just in the corner. Okay, and, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's it's not bad right now. And I will at some because I have Apple Care for it. So I will at some point get it fixed. But sure. The last one, coincidentally, actually, to tie David into this discussion, the last one I waited a while to replace because I knew I was going to Disney World um, for Declan's, my son's fifth birthday. And so I waited for like a month or two until after that trip because I figured there's a, as good a chance as any that I'll drop it on that trip and just shatter it again. And I didn't, but you know, you never know. Uh, and so I waited a while on that one. Uh, for this one, as soon as I am, and I'm just day, a few days away from being two weeks after my second shot. And so uh, sometime after that, I'll, I'll go and get it replaced. There's actually an interesting fact in that, Casey. It's interesting. Nobody has ever broken an iPhone at Disneyland. It never happens. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It, it is the most magical place on earth after all, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I hate you so much. <laughs> I once dropped the radio for the Mark Twain steamship off the pilot house into the Did river you? accidentally. <laughs> Whoops. I used to well, I used to have shifts when I was the 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 pilot of the steamship and you'd be up on the top of the wheelhouse and back in the day they had fireworks and we'd we'd park the boat out on the river and watch the fireworks and the very top of it this is like a long story that probably isn't that relevant but they call it the <laughs> Texas deck on those and I'd go out there and watch the fireworks and I tripped and the radio fell and I got back to the dock and I said guys my radio's <laughs> in the river so <laughs> whoopsies but it probably didn't break because it landed in the water so there you go it didn't shatter anyway if if nothing else (laughs) this episode of the mac power users is brought to you by text expander from smile go to textexpander.com slash podcast to get 20 percent off and type more with less effort text expander is the app that allows you to turn short abbreviations into longer bits of text and so much more did you know you can also supercharge your team with the power of Text Expander? Your team can do more with the same resources. Less repetition, fewer errors, and greater consistency will have your team feeling like they've hopped off a bicycle and into a Ferrari. That's because Text Expander for Teams can keep your team consistent, accurate, and current. You can share your text and images with the whole staff to keep them on track. Everyone will share the same message and give the same answers to all customer questions. With Text Expander for Teams, you can work faster and smarter. Using Text Expander's powerful shortcuts and abbreviations to streamline and speed up everything you type. You can also create powerful snippets to save you time so that all you type is a short abbreviation and Text Expander does the rest of the typing for you. I am a Text Expander for Teams subscriber. I have an account for both myself and my virtual assistant, and it helps us get through the field guide email in a much faster way. And the thing I love about it is that we both have access to the same library of snippets. So if I make a change to one, my virtual assistant gets it automatically. We don't have to worry about that. It just gets handled. I've talked to listeners that use Text Expander in two-person companies like mine, but I've also talked to listeners that use them in thousand-person companies, and they all love it. With Text Expander for Teams, you can keep the whole team communicating efficiently and with consistent language. You can share your snippets of messaging, signatures, and descriptions with everyone who works on the project with you. And Text Expander is available on Mac, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Just go to textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more and sign up and let them know you heard about it at the Mac Power Users. 
so Casey, you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago about your photos set up, and I do want to hear about that. Uh, but I know that at the heart of that and the heart of a lot of what you do at home is your Synology setup. So I'd like to hear a little bit about what you're using and, and maybe a few use cases that you find it to be uh, a helpful addition to your network. Yeah, so uh, for those who aren't aware, the Synology is one of several vendors of network-attached storage. And the idea is basically take one or more, in in my case, eight physical hard drives and put them in a single box, put a really fast Ethernet connection on that box and connect that to your network. And so you have, for all intents and purposes, infinite storage at your house. And so for me, I have a very old Synology now, um, which was gifted to me by Synology, uh, I don't know, like eight years ago now. Um, but I, I, now that I've lived this life, I will never, ever not have a Synology in my house. <laughs> like I, at some point I will be replacing this, but as I had said earlier, I, I expect this is going to be an expensive year for Apple stuff. So I'm trying to hold out on the Synology stuff, but nevertheless, I have what's called an 1813 plus, which is their like small business or like home business kind of tier. You know, it's not the completely bananas, super professional tier that's supposed to be sitting at like Apple headquarters or anything like that, but it's not, it's not just a toy either. And so this has uh, eight hard drive bays in it. And I do have eight hard drives in it. Uh, about half of them are three terabyte, if I recall correctly, and about half of them are 10 or no, 12 terabyte, 12 terabyte, I believe. And I, over the years I've been replacing them and this thing is amazing. Having effectively infinite storage in your home, you know, extremely fast to get to is great. And so that means something as silly yet important as not being too um, critical about what photos and videos I delete, because who cares? It's just sitting on the Synology. It's what's it going to hurt to have one more picture of your kids? Um, you know, I don't have to worry about that. Uh, I've been, I've come to be known in our little community as being a complete hoarder with regard to any kind of digital media. So I am a devout fan of Plex, which is a, uh, kind of a media front end that lets you, that puts a really nice uh, front end in front of, you know, all your media files, like videos and movies and, and pictures and, and audio, but I typically use it for movies and TV shows and things. So I have many, many terabytes of movies and TV shows on my Synology. Um, it just, it's, it, it's a really great box for doing some similar things to what David, you might be using your Mac mini for. And coincidentally, I have a Mac mini doing that for me as well, but it can do things like be a VPN server. It can do things like download files off the internet, uh, including BitTorrent. If you wanted to get, I don't know, a new Linux release mm-hmm. or something, yep. um, or, <laughs> or news groups where you can get new Linux releases or something. Um, and it can do all those sorts of things. And, it, but more than anything else, it, it, having your time machine back up there and having just infinite amounts of space, again, in a figurative sense, is really incredible. And it has changed my life for the better because now any TV show that like my kids care about or that Aaron and I care about, all they, they can do, the kids can do it themselves now. They know to go to Plex on the Apple TV and they know to look in the TV section of Plex and there's a kids section within there and they know they can pick out whatever Paw Patrol or Daniel Tiger or Sesame Street episode they want. And And for Aaron and I, you know, any media that we want, it's right there on Plex and right in the house. And it's worked out really, really phenomenally. Now, the problem with that, though, is I have and want devout control over my files and my media. And that's where my absolutely bananas and please don't do what I do photo process comes in. But before I go down that rabbit hole, any thoughts or questions about the Synology? You guys, you you each have one, right? Or no? Uh, I used to. And, uh... 
slowly moved everything over to being hosted off oh, uh, in your Mac, Mac Mini Pro. server, and now it is all just inside my Mac Pro. Yeah, I, I, I don't agree with that approach, but I can totally understand how you ended up there, and, and you're not really wrong. I mean, it's been a journey for me. <laughs> Years <laughs> ago, I did have a, um, oh, now I forget the name of it. They were sponsor of the show. Um, Drobo? Drobo. I had a Drobo. And that was great, except the thing for me is the the portable hard drives are so cheap. You're right. And I am not a data hoarder. I'm probably the opposite. <laughs> you know, as my kids got older, I mean, I, I remember when we used to rip the the Disney DVD so we could serve them up and not have to, you know, well, you know, the kids got peanut butter on one. I remember. And I was like, well, that's that. Right. So, so then I started ripping them, but you know, now my kids are not so peanut butter prone. And, and honestly, we watch a movie once, maybe twice, and then we're good. Um, so we, you know, little kids will watch the movie over and over again, but as, as you get older, you don't. And, um, so I just don't really feel like I need that complexity at this point. And, and I've got to a point where I just, you know, hang a drive off the back of my Mac that has enough storage for the stuff I need and call it a day. But, yep. um, I, I think one question I would have for you is where is that dividing line? You know, where do you go from just needing an extra drive to needing something like, you know, a, a Synology? You know, that's a really good question. And and I think I should slightly defend myself in saying that you have to remember that my media obsession, my media hoarding obsession was born to some degree in the early aughts when I was in college, but but particularly it was born before Disney Plus, before well, Netflix was a thing, but it was, you know, DVDs by mail at that point. Um, you know, a lot of these streaming services where you can just slurp down all you can eat, so to speak. That wasn't really a thing when I started being the pack rat that I am. And yeah, to in today's world, I don't know if I was coming at this fresh, I would necessarily want or need a Synology, but now I've got so much momentum behind it that it's really fit into my life in a really, in a way that works well for me. And, and I don't want to go back now to answer your question, you know, when do you go from just needing one or more hard drives attached to your computer to something bigger and, and more expensive? I think, first of all, if you have more than one computer, you know, if you don't want to be moving those hard drives back and forth, then I think that's a good time to get some sort of network attached storage. And to be clear, you know, there are Synologies that go from just two hard drives to something like 16 or, or, or some preposterous number. And while I have a probably overkill one for me, if you, the listener, wanted something that's much more affordable and much simpler, you can absolutely go down that road. Now, part of the advantage to having several physical drives in this in these boxes is that you can set up the Synology in such a way that if you lose one or maybe even two or three of these drives, if there's a catastrophic failure then your data is still safe because it's been put in the Synology in such a way that it's replicated or or there are checksums or what have you that mean that it can reconstruct when one of those hard drives fails. And, and that's the way I have mine set up. So if one fails, you're okay. Now, there was a brief window of time a year or two ago when two of them failed simultaneously and I thought I had lost everything. And that was, without hyperbole, one of the most stressful couple of working days of my life because a lot of my stuff, a lot of not only personal stuff, but some work stuff is on there too. And I thought I'd lost it all. Um, but yeah, I think if you are in a position where you have multiple machines or if you're doing something like Plex where you have a humongous library of video or something like that, that's when you should really start thinking about some sort of network attached storage. But for any normal person, and I, and I don't mean that dismissively at all, 
I think just a, a really big, you know, spinning hard drive, or perhaps if you can afford it, you know, a, a relatively large SSD hanging off the back of your computer in most cases is more than enough. I think there's one other good, good reason for a Plex a server is or Synology. I'm sorry, is um, if you want to be nerdy with it, because once you have the Synology, you can get into it. There's little apps you can run on it and do all sorts of cool tricks. And I know that you've been taking advantage of a bunch of that as well. Share, yeah, that's share right. some of your wisdom. Yeah. So for a long time, I ran a VPN server on the Synology. I don't do it on the Synology anymore. I actually do it on a Raspberry Pi, but um, that you can run a VPN server on the Synology so that if you need to get into your home's network for some reason from afar, you can do that. But it also serves a nice purpose of if you want to encrypt your you know, communication while you're on the road, then you can, in the same way that uh, a sponsor, perhaps like ExpressVPN can do it, well, you can do similar, not exactly the same, but similar things using a VPN hosted out of your house, uh, which is kind of nice. I also run Docker on it. Now, that's a very, very complicated topic that we don't really need to get into. But think of Docker as sort of kind of like running a virtual machine on the Synology. So it's kind of sort of like having a mini bespoke Linux computer inside of my mini bespoke Linux computer. And so what I use that for, for example, is Homebridge. And I don't recall how much you guys have talked about uh, home automation on here, but basically Homebridge is a, is a way to get m many other devices that don't natively support Apple HomeKit onto your Apple HomeKit home. And I run a what's called a Docker container on the Synology, which, is, like I said, is, you can think of it as a virtual machine. And I run this container on the Synology, and so the Synology is hosting Homebridge, which is really great because Homebridge is not particularly complicated software in terms of like its needs for a fast you know, processor or, or lots of RAM or anything. And so I just run that on the Synology. The Synology is always on anyway. Why not do it there? Um, when I download things, as I'd mentioned earlier, I do that on the Synology. So I don't have to clutter up, you know, my machines with that sort of thing. Um, once upon a time, I wrote a post about this, which we'll put a link in the show notes about some of the things you can do with a Synology and why I love it so much. We'll put that in the, we'll put that in the show notes, but it's stuff like that. That's really great where you can just have this, this accessory or sort of ancillary computer, um, that's sitting off to the side that does the sorts of things that you don't necessarily want. Like your main computer can do it, but you don't necessarily want it to be bothered with those sorts of things. And so now that you've got an eight-year-old one, mm -hmm. um, are you in love enough to to shell out money and replace it at some point? I, I think absolutely. I mean, th there's nothing wrong with this one. In the same way that there's nothing wrong with my uh, 2018 iPad Pro, so I don't have a lot of urgency to replace it, but I think at some point I certainly will. The problem, though, is when in the same way, if you get used to a Pro Display XCR... Mm -hmm. uh, then you kind of can't ever go back from it, I imagine. And similar, similarly with this Synology, you know, I have eight bays worth of drives. And granted, with today's hard drive technology, I could go down to fewer hard drives, each of which is bigger. But I don't know that I would want to, because even if I get more bigger drives, if nothing else, I can increase redundancy. So instead of, you know, me having a problem, if I lose one drive, I could have a problem only if I lose two drives or only three drives or something like that. And the, these boxes are expensive. Again, this one happened to be gifted to me, but it's like $1,000 or something like that for whatever the equivalent box, you know, the most modern version of this box is. And that's without any hard drives in it. And, you know, each of these hard drives I'm buying is something around $300 a drive. So obviously 300 times eight plus a thousand on top of that, like that adds up fast. And it's a big ask to do something like that unless you really, really know you need it, which is why, again, I can't stress enough. 
you don't have to jump all the way to eight bays with a Synology. I personally think that four is the minimum that I would recommend, but you can definitely get a two bay one and they're not that much money. Well, and, and you know, another case for them that I think is useful is like small business. You yep, get one of absolutely. those, you put it in your network closet and you can run it in a way where it's making a copy of everything on the, on the Synology itself. Mm-hmm. So you've got two backups there. And it just gives you a big pile of storage that's literally in another room. And yep. I, I think there are cases for that. Yep. And I, I guess if you had a house where you had like a lot of media, like like Casey, that would make sense too. Oh, you know, another thing I didn't think of uh, that's a great example is I was a devout Dropbox person for the longest time. And then over the last two to three years, it's been, it's the, the, the client software has just gotten awful. And it's clearly meant for someone that is not me. Originally, it was meant for people like me, but now it is meant for businesses and, and it's meant to be like a Google Docs, you know, one-off, if you will. And Synology, so they have some of the world's, world's worst naming. So there are like three different things or five different things that, that, that are called quote unquote Synology Drive. But if you can get past that, one of the things that 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 Synology Drive is is basically like a, a faux Dropbox. It's like your own private Dropbox in the sense that it's hosted on your Synology, and but it operates in much the same way that Dropbox does. You know, all my computers, all my phones, all my tablets, all of them can share the same repository of space, and it works just like Dropbox. You know, it's basically transparent. You don't have to think about it; it's just there. But a listener to ATP pointed out to me, well, one of the things that Synology can do is you can use, I think it's called CloudSync. And again, these are all apps on their, you know, quote unquote app store. Uh, you can use CloudSync to synchronize your Dropbox to the, your Synology drive. So what that means is my Dropbox is just a folder on my hard drive. And I do not have, which I mean, everyone's Dropbox is that, but I don't have the Dropbox software running. What I do is I make my changes to my Dropbox folder on my computer that gets synced up to my Synology and then my Synology syncs it up with Dropbox. And so now I have all the benefits of Dropbox in that I have shared folders for like my ATP co-host, for my analog co-host. And and I have all of that, but I don't have to run the Dropbox software, which is amazing. And so that's a silly example. Is it worth, you know, $2,000 to get rid of Dropbox? No, certainly not. But if you already have this thing sitting there, you can find all sorts of great uses for it. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Loopback for Rogue Amoeba. Loopback is a tool to route audio between different apps on your Mac. It has this really intuitive wire-based interface that's really easy to use. So you take your source and drag it over to the app you want. It's really easy and actually fun to use because you can visualize where your audio is being routed. You can use it to combine multiple sources into one. Loopback gives you incredible power over how audio flows on your system and replaces what we used to have to do with hardware that can cost hundreds of dollars. Trying to get these kinds of workflows in place before Loopback was incredibly time-consuming and frustrating. Trust me, but Loopback makes it simple and it's useful for podcasters, live performances, even tabletop gamers. You can use Loopback to bring the audio of two microphones into your Mac and create a single audio input for Skype or other VoIP program, which is otherwise basically impossible. And as someone who does a lot of weird audio stuff on the Mac, it's really handy. Gamers can record gameplay videos with game audio and commentary, and musicians can combine hardware devices into a single input with no need for expensive physical mixers. Really, I can't get across how great the interface is. 
Doing this any other way would be so difficult to understand, but with this wire-based UI, it's easy to see what's set up and easy to troubleshoot if something isn't doing what you want it to do. In this era of Zoom calls, Loopback has found incredible popularity being used to add audio to your system. Like say you want to add sound clips to your next family quiz or improving the sound of your mic by teaming it up with something like Audio Hijack. So go check it out. This is an indispensable tool in my tool belt with audio apps. Head on over to macaudio.com mpu21. That's macaudio.com mpu21. And you'll get 21% off the end of May when you use the code MPU21. This offer also applies to various bundles that Loopback is a part of, including the Loopback plus Audio Hijack bundle, the Ultimate Podcast bundle as well. These are fantastic deals. Once again, go to macaudio.com slash MPU21, and you'll get 21% off through the end of May when you use the code MPU21. Our thanks to Rogue Amoeba for their support of the show and Relay FM. So Casey, we had mentioned your photo process uh, and uh, we'll have a link in the show notes to uh, a post that you wrote, wrote about it a couple of years ago. But uh, tell us how you manage your photos. Uh, do I have to? Yep. <laughs> um, no, so it, my, my process is kind of bananas and that link is accurate in spirit, but the actual machinations are a little bit different now. Um, the the short, short version is Stephen has ruined my life yet again, because on Connected, you know, all of these photo management services that I love so much, Everpix, Picture Life, et cetera, mm-hmm. uh, you killed them. It was all your fault. And so eventually I got to the point that I realized, you know what, I just need to rely on only my own files and my own folders and so on. And I can't trust Everpix or Picture Life or what have you in order to to manage my pictures because they all disappear. Now, again, this is kind of an old point of view because this is before iPhone photo or iCloud photo library existed. Um, Google photos was a thing and I dabbled with that for a while, but it didn't work for me for uninteresting reasons. Um, but I needed a way to, to really be the master of my own domain when it came to photos. And for all the things that I consider precious, including my Plex library, which I do genuinely consider quite precious, the most precious thing I think I have probably more than business related documents, more than even potentially the source code for the apps I write, the most precious thing I have is photos of my family. And so uh, in short, what I do is uh, once a month, I will take my phone and that's usually in the middle of the month. And once a month, I will take Aaron's phone, which is usually at the end of the month, and I will sync it up with a computer and I will suck all of the photos on, on that device into the photos app on my computer. Uh, and and every time I do that, I create a brand new photos library, which I know is already making people's skin crawl because that is not the way you're supposed to use photos, but that's what I do. So this photos library only has the last month's worth of pictures on that device. I'll then export all the unmodified originals for all those. So I'm getting raw HEIC files, raw MOV files, et cetera. And I'll dump those onto a folder in my hard drive. At that point, I have a bespoke uh, Swift command line app that I wrote that is the same in spirit as I believe on that post, I talked about a, a script that Dr. Drang had written that there was a Python script that did basically the same thing. And what it does is 
it looks at all these pictures and it, in using the metadata within the picture that the camera itself puts within the picture file, it'll try to figure out, okay, when was this picture taken? Where in, in, in what is the correct time and date of that picture? And then what it'll do is it'll drop those onto the Synology in a year month folder setup. So if I ha- if I did this today and I took a, it, it took a picture from today, it would go into the Synology into my you know picture repository as 2021. And then in the 2021 folder, there will be an 05 folder. And then the picture will be named, you know, 2021 hyphen 05 hyphen 03 space, whatever time it is right now. And so that is an absolutely bananas way to store your pictures if you care about anything other than date. But, but the good thing is if I want to find a picture of something, all I need to do is figure out when it was taken. And then it takes me no time to find other pictures of that thing or the picture I'm looking for and so on. Now I do, I do use Google photos to suck in stuff from our phones when possible. And that usually will, will do enough to get me close enough in date to get the thing I want. Uh, but the problem is I do still have a big camera. I have a micro four thirds camera that I do take pictures on a lot fewer now, now that the iPhone cameras have gotten so darn good, but (laughs) nevertheless, it does happen. And so Google photos doesn't pull those in. And that's because the Google photos uploader just really did not work for me. Um, so it doesn't see the big camera photos, but it sees all the iPhone photos and, and the combination of this, this absolutely cockamamie folder structure and folder naming structure and Google photos kind of off to the side gets me to the place that I feel comfortable with it. And the key here and the, the, like the, the, the absolute crux of this entire workflow and the thing that I will not budge on much to the consternation of anyone I ever talked to about this is I want to own these files and I want them to be stored in the way I want them. And so as soon as you say that, a lot of times with like the photos app or with Google photos or in other things, a lot of times they want to have their own opinions about the way and where the files are stored. And for, for, because I've been burned so many times, I just don't, I just don't want that. I don't want that in my life and I want to be in control. And so because of that, that's how I landed on this absolutely bananas scheme that I did. And no one should listen to me and nobody should copy it, but that's what I'm doing. And the advantage of having the Synology to kind of bring this back around is that I have plenty of space to do it. Yeah. I mean, we've we've heard from listeners who have similar things set up through something like Dropbox and Hazel. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of tools you could use to automatically sort and store yep, images. Yep, yep in a cloud service or even just in uh, just in finder. But it, it sounds like you're using Google photos as the way to see those when you're just on your iPhone. Yeah, it basically. And I can use Plex to do it if I wanted to, although Plex's photo support is not great. Um, but usually if I'm trying to call up a picture to like show a friend, remember when we could see friends in like real life, wasn't that awesome? Uh, if I wanted to call up a picture and show a friend or something like that, I would turn to Google photos. Yeah. And on my to-do list for if, and when I ever get bored is to buy like a two or three or four terabyte SSD and hang it off of my iMac pro and have a duplicate of all of these put onto there and then tell photos, just do your thing, just go ahead. And the reason I haven't done that already is because Photos does not believe in using network any network drive as its you know source of record. It just won't do it. It'll do it with a big external hard drive that's physically attached. But when you try to do it over the network, it just says, nope, no, thank you. 
And so at some point I will be getting a big hard drive and, and trying to let Google, or excuse me, trying to let uh, the Apple Photos app suck it all in. And if that works all right, then I'll probably start using iCloud Photo Library and I'll probably regret not having done it sooner. But it, I just, I, the sanctity of those files is paramount to me and I just won't budge on the Synology being the one true source of record of all my pictures. Have you ever considered just like using photos library, but then just doing a monthly export of the files to your Synology? Cause you can do that out of photos. Yeah, and- I've, I, I could do that. I suppose like there's honestly no reason why I couldn't, but I've, I've gotten so much momentum and I'm so used to just physically plugging in these cameras and just doing it, you know, over a wire that it's, it's no real bother to me to just continue to do that. It doesn't take that long and it's fairly straightforward. Yeah. I feel like you're making a lot of work for yourself, but oh, I am. I, I absolutely I am, without question. <laughs> I mean, but it's also you know your pictures, and I understand why people are a little you know frenetic about having their pictures safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly right. And when I went through a scare, like I'd mentioned a couple of years ago, where I thought I'd lost everything on the Synology, I did have backups of my pictures, but I didn't have as robust a solution as I wanted. And now the pictures, in particular. Oh, geez. They're backed up to Backblaze. They're backed up to Google Photos with a couple of exceptions. Um, They're backed up to, I I didn't mention that I actually have a a second Synology, a much smaller one offsite at my parents' house. And that gets nightly backups of everything on this Synology. Um, They're also backed up to an external hard drive that I store at my parents' house. Uh, So my pictures are in many different places. And I will never go through that again where I thought, oh my God, oh my God, I might've lost it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty bananas and and pretty, pretty devout in my protection of these files. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. All right. Uh, well, in addition to protecting your photos, you're also making apps. Yeah. (laughs) In fact, you're making an app that relates to photos. Talk yeah, about peak of view really That's quick. right. Uh, yeah, so I, I had a different app in the App Store that I've since sunset, as they say, in Silicon Valley. Um, and if you're interested, we can talk about that. But the one app I have in the App Store right now is called Peak of View. And it was actually born in the one true, unquestionably happiest place on Earth, which is Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. Come at me, bro. Uh, anyway, so I was at Disney World. Uh, this was for the aforementioned fifth birthday celebration for my son. And at the time, my daughter was just barely shy of two years old. And uh, one of the few ways that we could convince her to just kind of chill out uh, and, and, and go with the flow at the time was to give her our phones and let her flip through pictures on our phones, even at less than two years old, which in and of itself is fine. But I have, as, as we've long established at this point, I have a real phobia of losing any of my pictures. And because of that, when I'm looking at Michaela, my daughter, flipping through these pictures, I'm just looking at that little trash icon on the bottom of the screen and thinking, please don't touch it, please don't touch it, please don't touch it, please don't touch it. And you can do things with like guided access in order to prevent her from touching it, but it's kind of clunky and it's not fun and it's just not easy. So after I came back from Disney, I wrote Peak of You. And the idea here is that it's a read, the idea here is that it's a read only photo gallery and it you cannot edit your photos in any way. You can't delete them, can't crop them, can't resize them, nothing. And so it's perfect for like a toddler or I don't know, a client that you don't want messing about with your pictures. And, um, and so that, that's what it is. It's, it's fairly small and fairly simple, but it serves a really important need for me and potentially for other parents of toddlers as well. And so that's called peak of you. And it's been in the app store for, guess like a little over a year now, something like that. Um, and it's, it's free to use with up to, I think 20 pictures at first. And then there's a one time only, uh, $5 in app purchase to unlock all of your pictures. 
Uh, and yeah, it, and this was all as all snark and jokes aside, this was born from trying to get, calm Michaela down while we were at Walt Disney World. It's funny how some of the best apps come out of things like that, you know, yep. just it's so your true. own need. Yep. And you mentioned in the uh, in the blog post that you can pair it with guided access, which is this set of tools in iOS where you can effectively lock a device into a single application. So a lot of iPads that get used as like consoles or information, you know, placards or something often get locked with guided access. But Mm -hmm. it's a good trick because the app is very clever. But then when you pair it with this thing built into the OS, like your kid is basically just stuck in it. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, yeah, so guided access, one of the things you can do is you can like literally draw little circles around parts of the screen. You don't want your your child or whoever to tap, but it's much easier when it's just lock them into this app and they can do whatever they want in the app, but just lock them in this app. They can't get, hit the home button or you know swipe up to get to the home screen. They may or may not even be allowed to hit the volume, physical volume buttons on the side of the screen. And that's exactly what we do. So in in my use case, what I'll do if if Michaela wants to look at a picture or several pictures is I'll start peak of view, I'll triple tap on the side lock button, and that will kick off guided access. And that's not always true based on your particular settings, but that's typically true. And that'll lock her into peak of view. And one of the things that peak of view does is if you, if it realizes that you're in guided access mode, it will take off the top navigation bar where things like settings exist. So there's literally no way for you to hit settings if you're using peak of view and guided access mode. Um, and then as soon as you take guided access off, it's smart enough to say, okay, you can, you know, presumably an adult is looking at this again and it will let you, um, go into settings and, and do things like change what album the, the app is showing. And so it's funny because. I'd written the app pretty much exclusively for parents of toddlers, but some people said, hey, you know what? This is actually great for clients, you know, because I want to lock the client into only viewing the the album or the particular photos that I want to show them. And I don't want them looking at like my vacation pictures or anything like that. And Peak View supports that as well. So you can choose a different album or even just say this picture, this picture, this picture, this picture, and then lock it into just that that collection and and you won't have to worry about you know, your client looking at a text message or, or going into some other part of your phone because they are mm-hmm. locked into peak view and locked into only the pictures that you've blessed. Yeah. As an app developer, you know, what is your reaction or, or feeling when you get feedback of people using your app in ways that you had not considered? Mostly delightful, but also terrifying because especially in the case of peak of view, I had an extremely specific use case in mind and it's great that people have found other ways to use it, but it's also a little worrisome because I wasn't considering that. And in some cases, there weren't the appropriate amount of affordances for that use case. So as an example, um, I internally called it Mike mode when I was working at it. But Mike Hurley, you know, our our mutual friend uh, and my co-host on Analog, he had said, you know, I don't really want to have an album that I'm showing to someone. I want to be able to just select individual pictures like I talked about a moment ago. And that was an example that I think was better for adults. Like, I just want to show, you know, I want to hand my phone to another adult, like a client or whatever, or a friend, and I want them to only see these seven pictures that I've selected. And so, quote unquote, mic mode, as I called it when I worked on it, was to do exactly that. And that wouldn't, that that whole mic mode thing wouldn't have come into or wouldn't I wouldn't have built that into the app were it not for people like Mike and others saying, well, you know, this is great, but I want to use it in this slightly different way 
what can we do about that? And so it's, it's fantastic and wonderful, but it's also something that I wish I had thought of sooner. So I could have put in the appropriate affordances when it was brand new. Now you built this app entirely in Swift UI, right? No, no. Uh, that one was just plain old vanilla UI kit. There, there were, I think there are a couple of screens that are Swift UI that I was kind of using as a test bed when Swift UI first came out. Uh, but that's all UI kit. However, I do have something in the works that I don't want to talk too much about, but that thing that I'm working on now is a, is a hundred percent Swift UI and, and, and I'm using that there instead. Could you explain, because some of our listeners, I mean, a lot of our listeners aren't developers, but mm-hmm. Apple has this Swift UI that's now been baking a couple of years. Yep. Could you kind of explain what it is and, and how it's going for you? Sure. So the way that you used to write apps, and still can on iOS and certainly on the Mac, is you would, I mean, this wasn't the only way, but typically what people would do, what developers would do, is they would draw out their user interfaces using their mouse, and they would you know, draw out a rectangle for a button, and then they would draw out a rectangle for a list or, or for a place to input text, and they would draw this on the screen. And then you would use a, a technology called auto layout to say, okay, this button needs to be two-thirds of the way down the screen, and it needs to have a 10-pixel t- gap to the thing below it. And none of this was that particularly difficult on the surface, but particularly with auto layout, what you're doing is you're defining the way everything is laid out based on what where it is relative to other things. So this button needs to be five pixels away or five points away from this other button. This image needs to be a third of the way down the screen and it can only be half the width of the screen and so on and so forth. And that really came to arise because we had different size iPhones and different yep. size iPads. And exactly right. You didn't, you couldn't take for granted what the screen was going to look like. Exactly. And then when, you know, we were talking about earlier, uh, we were talking earlier about uh, iPad multitasking. Well, here's an iPad app that suddenly needs to shrink to the width of pro- the approximate width of an iPhone because it's off on the side. And so auto layout was supposed to make that easier and in a sense, it did because certainly everything was more flexible, but auto layout is a very challenging thing to get right because you're really ultimately under the hood. What you're doing is you're algebra- algebraically defining the layout of a screen based on a gazillion different variables and a gazillion, and a gazillion different inputs. And it works. I've done it. I've done it plenty. I mean, that's what PeakView uses, but it's it's challenging. So Around the time that auto layout was really getting big, some of the cool kids in the industry were starting to think about what they call declarative UIs. And so what that is, is something more similar, not exactly the same, but more similar to HTML, for example. So you're saying, instead of, I want this to be you know, 10 pixels off the screen, off the top of the screen and five pixels from the next thing, it's more about kind of composing a user interface. So you say, all right, in the screen... I know I want these four things to be vertically stacked. First thing I want is a button. Then I want a list. Then I want an input field. And then I want another button. And that's all you're saying. And then the system figures out, all right, well, they said that they want those four things in a vertical stack. And I know that the list is going to take up as much space as it possibly can. And I'll make sure that the buttons are the appropriate height for a button to be and the text input to be the appropriate in, you know, height for an input to be and so on and so forth. And so rather than the developer having to worry about all those things, how tall is this? What width is that? You're mostly, not always, not exclusively, but mostly just saying, these are the bits I want and they're nested inside of these other bits. Figure it out. And that's what SwiftUI is. SwiftUI is that kind of declarative UI. And so that makes development 
I, well, I, it's, it's a very it's a very deep rabbit hole. So um, I'm going to skip over some nuance here, so we don't go on for another seven hours. But mm-hmm. in theory, it makes development much faster. And certainly the tooling within Xcode. So Xcode is the app on your Mac that you use to write apps. And in Xcode, the Swift UI tooling is considerably better because as I'm sitting there changing things in my Swift UI file, you know, as I'm changing a list to a table or as I'm changing a button to a to a bit of text or vice versa, I'm watching a simulated version of that user interface within Xcode change on the fly as I'm making these changes. This is in contrast to the old way of doing things where the only way I would be able to see my changes is to compile. So to build the app, to compile the app, which depending on the size of the app can take anywhere from just a moment to like 30, 40 seconds. Then it needs to go either into a device or into the simulator, which is an app, you know, another app on your computer. And then the simulator needs to reinstall or your device needs to reinstall this new app. Then it needs to run the app. Then you need to tap, 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 tap to get to the particular screen you're trying to get to within the app. And then that's when you go, oh no, I'm five pixels off. And you have to start the whole process over again. Right. And with Swift UI, it's considerably faster because you get a pretty accurate approximation of what it is as you're developing it. You know, as, as I'm typing in the Swift UI file, hi, Steven, and then I backspace, backspace, hi, David. I'm looking at that user interface in Xcode change from hi, Steven to hi, David live right there. And so it makes everything a lot faster. The problem, though, is that it's a new technology. And as with all new technologies, you don't really want to be on the bleeding edge of that because Apple has done a very good job of making a lot of things very easy in Swift UI. But as soon as you go off the beaten path and don't do one of the things that Apple expects you to do, it gets real ugly real quickly. Yeah. And I know a lot of developers that um, in the early days were like, this looks really interesting, but I will not touch this with a 10 foot pole. But it seems yeah. like talking to developer friends, yourself included, suddenly that's not the case. It seems like a lot of people are working on projects based on Swift UI now. Yeah. So it's as with everything, the question is, is the juice worth the squeeze? And in this case, especially for something that I had a blank slate, I think it mostly is. So this forthcoming app, again, I don't want to talk too much about it, but it has an an, IO, an iOS component and a watch component. And for all of it, I've been using Swift UI. And I've been recently working on the watch to phone communication. And just to like prove out that it was working, I wrote myself a little like debug view where basically it's just a list of messages and then a place to tap a message. It's almost like a chat client from me to me. And the only reason I did this was to prove that when I write a message on the phone, it appears on the watch. And if I, you know, hit send a message on the watch, it appears on the phone, right? Well, one of the neat things about Swift UI is that hypothetically it's portable to anything. And so this one debug view that will never see the light of day, but nevertheless, this one debug view, it is one file that works on an iPhone 12 Pro Max and the exact same file works on the Apple Watch. You know, even the 40 millimeter Apple Watch, the tiniest Apple Watch Apple has. And that same file is doing both. And that's because, again, even with auto layout, you're typically defining things in terms of points or, you know, kind of pixels and and what needs to go where. And you're being more explicit about it, even when you're doing auto layout relatively, you know, oh, instead of saying I want this at the 100 pixels down, you say it, I want a third of the way down the screen. Even then, when you have these wildly varying screen sizes, it becomes very challenging very quickly. Well, eh, in the iPhone, I want it 30% of the way down the screen. In the watch, I want it only 10% down the screen. And it's just, it's, it's a pain. Whereas with Swift UI, all I'm saying is I want a list of messages, then I want a place to enter a message and a button next to it. Done. And that works across both devices. And it's really great. So 
in that sense, I think it's worth it. And certainly on the watch, which is from everything I've understood where SwiftUI was born was specifically for the watch. It's it's a much better approach than any of the alternatives that we have because we can't use UI kit. We can't use auto layout on the watch. You have to use these really wonky other technologies that kind of stink. And so if I'm going to be using it on the watch, why not just use it on the phone? And for the most part, and especially with every passing year, it gets better and better. Uh, so it, it's not been bad, but it has not been a walk in the park. And for me, the juice in this case is worth the squeeze, but you don't see me going back and re-implementing peak of view using Swift UI. So sure. as with all things, you know, the, the right tool for the right job. I know when they announced um, auto layout that a lot of developers were looking at Apple saying, oh, okay, so you're made this because you are probably going to have different size screens very mm-hmm. shortly. And right after that, we got the big iPhone. Do you see Swift UI telegraphing any future moves from Apple the way auto layout um, telegraph the future of, of the iPhone sizes? Potentially. One of the most interesting things about Swift UI from a real nerd perspective is uh, what, what are we learning from it? Like you were saying, and if you look at the widget system that came to be in last year's WWDC and WWDC 2020, um, one of the things that was interesting about the widget system is that widgets had to be done with Swift UI. And what they're doing under, under the hood and behind the scenes is that they're, uh, the technical term is serializing or, or really just kind of saving off a Swift UI view and saving it for later. And that's not something you can really easily do with, you know, UI kit and the other technologies in the past. And what that allows them to do is make these widgets very, very performance. They can, they can do a lot with very little processing time. And if you're going to be able to take an entire user interface and distill it down to something very simple and very easy to process, where else would you want to do that? Would you want to do that for glasses? Would you want to do that for VR or AR? You know, where else would this be useful? Would you want to do it in a car? Would you want to do it on a dashboard? You know, once you're, once you're able to take a developer's entire user interface and distill it and get it to a position where it can be saved to disk to be used later, or perhaps saved to disk and then sent over the wire or over Bluetooth to something else. That makes a lot of very interesting things possible. And I could totally foresee a a time when, you know, there's Apple AR glasses and the only way that you can put something on, on screen, if you will, is if it's Swift UI. And certainly, I think in the future, Apple would prefer to have Swift UI be the one true way. I don't think it'll ever realistically happen because it's just not flexible enough. But in a perfect world, Apple would want Swift UI to be the one true way. And this is why you know, I've been thinking a lot about, to go back a step, you know, will we ever have Mac apps on the iPad? And I think it was Steve and one of you guys mentioned earlier, you know, well, they kind of ported UI Kit to AppKit, which is to say they ported the technology that runs apps on iOS and made it work on the Mac. And that's what Catalyst is. Well, why wouldn't they go the other direction? Why wouldn't they make AppKit work within the realm of UIKit so you can bring a Mac app to the, to the iPhone or, or to the iPad more, more especially? And I just don't see that happening because UIKit had very clear and very strong guardrails on either side of it. You can only do but so much. Whereas AppKit, comparatively anyway, the stuff you use to write Mac, Mac apps, is so much more Wild West, is so much more of a free-for-all that I don't ever really see that happening. And so in the same way, you know, Swift UI has even stronger and even narrower guardrails, which for something that's very intense to compute, like, I don't know, overlaying something on the real world, or perhaps putting something on a dashboard when you're trying to make sure a car doesn't go hurtling off the road, 
you know, that's where you want to have the tightest guardrails you can. And that's where I wonder if SwiftUI is, to your point, David, choreographing something in the future. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace and enter offer code MPU at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to build your online presence and run your business. From websites and online stores to marketing tools and analytics, they've got you covered. Squarespace combines cutting-edge design and world-class engineering, making it easier than ever to establish your home online and make your ideas a reality. Squarespace has everything you need to create a beautiful and modern website. You start with a professionally designed template and use drag-and-drop tools to make it your own. You can customize the look and feel, the settings, the products you have on sale, and more with just a few clicks. And all Squarespace websites are optimized for mobile. Your content automatically adjusts so it will look great on any device. You'll also get free unlimited hosting, top-of-the-line security, and dependable resources to help you succeed. There's nothing to patch or upgrade. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. And they'll even let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. Plus, you'll have everything you need for SEO and email marketing to get your ideas out there. You can use Squarespace to turn your big idea into a new website or showcase your work with their incredible portfolio designs. You could publish your next blog post, promote your business, announce an upcoming event, and so much more. Just this weekend, when Daisy and I decided to make this Disneyland field guide, we went to Squarespace and created a website. We got the domain Disneyland Field Guide. I paid an extra 20 bucks to get DLR Field Guide as well, so it points at it. All of that was done right at Squarespace. We were running the website through Squarespace, and we're super happy with it. My wife isn't as much of a nerd as I, but she is already digging in on Squarespace and helping build the website. Head to squarespace.com slash MPU for a free trial with no credit card required. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MPU to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash MPU. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for the Mac Power Users. Our thanks to Squarespace for their support of the Mac Power Users and all of FM. Something you've been doing, Casey, since the last time we had you on the show that I am interested in is this Raspberry Pi experiment. And uh, so you're buying these little $20 computers <laughs> and you're making things. And there's something about this I find super attractive. It goes back to my childhood and fiddling with electronics as a kid. And uh, this is something I've always wanted to do, but just never found the time for. How'd you get into those Raspberry Pis and... And what are you doing with them? Right. So to back up just a quick step, a Raspberry Pi, like you said, is a very, very affordable, but surprisingly powerful computer. It's an entire computer on one board. And the the kind of mainstream Raspberry Pi, I think they're up to the Raspberry Pi 4 now, which is the fourth version of it. And it can be used as a full honest-to-goodness computer. It has, I think, four USB-A ports. It has a USB-C for power. It has two mini or micro HDMI. I always get it backwards, but two itty-bitty HDMI ports. It has Bluetooth. It has Wi-Fi. It has uh, gigabit Ethernet. It is an honest-to-goodness computer. Now, the downside is you have to run Linux on it, so that's not exactly the most fun thing in the world. But it is a computer. And I have one of those running um, a Pi-hole. That's P-I-H-O-L-E. 
And it's a very comically named um, kind of ad blocker, basically, uh, that that runs at the network level. And so um, it, what that does is anything that's on my home network gets at least some modicum of ad blocking kind of for free. I don't have to run anything on all my devices. It happens on this Raspberry Pi. And it run, so the Pi hole runs there. I think I'd mentioned earlier that I have a VPN server running there. So I'm using WireGuard as my VPN server. And so the, the Raspberry Pi is hosting that. Uh, occasionally I will plug a monitor into it and I have a, uh, a super Nintendo style game pad that works over Bluetooth and I'll use it for RetroPie, which is a, a, a emulation system that lets me run like Nintendo games and super Nintendo games and, and play them on the raspberry Pi. And that works even, it'll even play it in with reasonable efficacy, uh, Nintendo 64 games, which is quite cool. Uh, but I also have a couple of Raspberry Pi, uh, shoot, what are they, zeros? Raspberry Pi Zero, I think that's right, um, which is literally $10. The Raspberry Pi 4 is, I think, $40 or $60, something like that, for an entire computer. I mean, I can't stress enough. It's an entire computer for like 40 bucks. And again, it's not a bad computer. It's not super powerful, but it's not bad. Um, yeah, it starts at $35 for two gigs of RAM. So they also have the uh, Raspberry Pi Zero, which is designed to be a much smaller, much leaner, much less powerful Raspberry Pi. And you can get one of these for literally $10. Now, again, it is a full honest goodness Linux computer, not a powerful one, but it's an honest goodness Linux computer with Wi-Fi and Bluetooth for $10. And so you literally, you're just given a board. It doesn't come with a box. It doesn't come with a case. It doesn't come with power. It doesn't come with anything. Uh, and you're just given a board and said, have fun. And so what I'm using these for, I'm using the big one, like I described, but I also have two Raspberry Pi zeros. And this is where I think you might find this a little more entertaining, David, is I, I decided early in quarantine that I needed something to do with my hands other than work to keep me busy. And I, I had been wanting for the longest time to play with a Raspberry Pi, but I never had an excuse to use one. And what I ended up doing was I got two of these Raspberry Pi zeros and one of them is sitting in my garage on top of my garage door opener. And I have it running to a, oh shoot, I forget the name of the sensor now, but a, 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 a shoot, I can't think of the name of it, but it's a, it's a sensor, a proximity sensor where there's two different pieces of plastic. And when they're near each other, the metal on the inside like conducts electricity and it says, okay, this thing is closed. And when they separate, it says, okay, it's open. And so I have one of the, one of these on the garage door. So I know when my garage door is open or closed. And that reports into the Raspberry Pi. The Raspberry Pi is physically connected to the switch and it knows when the garage door is open and when it's closed. And then it reports via Wi-Fi. It reports into a second Raspberry Pi zero that's in my bedroom and it's hooked up to an LED that I have oh so eloquently and, and wonderfully taped to the side of my nightstand. Oh, it, it no. Oh, Stephen, I should send you this. It will give you nightmares because it is, it, as someone who appreciates good cable management, you will hate me for this. But nevertheless, there's literally an LED just taped to my nightstand. And when the <laughs> garage door is open, that LED lights up. And when the garage door is closed, the LED gets turned off. And now, and if I go to bed, I know just at a glance whether my garage door is open. Is this stupid? Yes. Did I need to do all this to make this sort of thing happen? No. Are there third-party solutions that you can pay like 50 bucks to make this work? Absolutely. But I just wanted to do it myself and give it a shot. And in the same way that when I ran my first iOS app on my phone in like 2008, 2009, something like that, and I'm for, for the first time ever, I'm holding my code. You know, I'd written code for years and years and years, but it was always on a computer. And now I'm holding my code in my hand well, in the same way, when I was just trying to get all this set up and I saw that LED turn on, 
when I told it to and then turn off when I told it to. It was the coolest thing to see that real life thing happen. I bet. And, 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 and that's something that the Raspberry Pi is really great for, for that sort of hardware tinkering. And I've seen a gazillion different uses for these, but that's what I'm doing it for. And if you need like a really cheap, really basic home server that isn't going to be advanced as advanced as a Mac mini, and it's not going to be as easy as a Mac mini, but you just need something cheap, cheap and straightforward and well, straightforward in a weird way. I can't say enough good things about the Raspberry Pi. They are so much fun to tinker with and so little cost of entry. You know, here I am trying to justify a $2,000, $2,000 worth of Synology and hard drives. Again, $40 for the most powerful Raspberry, maybe 50 bucks if you get like eight gigs of RAM or whatever for, for an entire computer. And granted, you need a power supply, you need an SD card, you need a case. So I think I got a kit that was like maybe a hundred bucks or something like that, that had all those things already in it. But again, a hundred dollars to start yeah. a new hobby and get the best thing you can get in that hobby's little world. It's so fun and so great. Yeah, I think people give you a hard time for this and I totally am on your side. I, I feel like this is something that's fun to do. And uh, just like I was saying earlier, as a kid, I had electronics kits I'd buy from Radio Shack. And I remember like rigging microphones under the couch and doing all kinds of weird stuff in my house as a little kid with electronics. And I feel like this is just kind of the natural next step for it. Yep. Um, do you have any fun projects planned? I mean, have you got something up your sleeve you're working on? Not at the moment. Uh, right, right now we're, we're also doing some construction on the house. And, um, and so I've been sidetracked by trying to delve into the world or, or well, I've already been in the world of home automation to a very, very small degree, but now I'm trying to figure out, um, some new things with home automation, or not even automation necessarily, but just home kit. I'm not really automating much, but nevertheless, I, I want to, uh, for this, we're, we're putting a porch on the back of the house and, and, uh, you know, I'm starting to dabble with Lutron Caseta switches now, and I'm in the middle of trying to get, uh, a couple of fans, ceiling fans that I thought would work with the bespoke Lutron Caseta fan switches, but don't. And I could go on about, about this for an hour, but in short, they're actually using radio frequency to control the fan. So the thing in the wall that, that you hit to start the fan, stop the fan, change the speed or whatever, instead of altering like voltage or what have you on the, on the wire going into the fan, it just sends a command to the fan and, and the fan has a receiver that receives that command and then it does what it needs to do. And I have a strong suspicion that I'm going to need to try to reverse engineer how all that works and potentially get another Raspberry Pi with like a with a radio frequency transmitter on it in order to try to get this fan on HomeKit. That is like the the desperation scenario. There's actually a couple of other things I want to try first, including just straight up removing the RF transmitter from the fan entirely, which might be enough. Um, there's also a product, I think it's called bond or something like that. That is like the hundred dollars that would do this for me. And in this case, I might just throw money at the problem to fix it, but I have thought about and started dabbling in, in looking into what it would take to add an RF transmitter to a raspberry Pi and do this by hand myself. But like another great example, very quickly of something you can do with raspberry Pi. Uh, I forget exactly what the name of the board is or the company that makes it, but a lot of people are getting a board that you can add onto the raspberry Pi that has like optical out. And what they're doing is they're running a particular so a set of software designed for the Raspberry Pi that lets it masquerade as an air, an airplay receiver. So what you've got is for like 20, 30 bucks or whatever you, well, it's like, you know, 30, 40 bucks for the Raspberry Pi. And it's probably like another 30, 40 bucks for this little board. 
But what you've got is effectively one of the Airport Express AirPlay receivers. You know how you used to do that? You would drop an, Air, an Airport Express somewhere, and you weren't even really using it for Wi-Fi. You were using it for AirPlay to, to hook it up to your stereo. And people are basically making their own Air, Airport Expresses, so to speak, via a Raspberry Pi and an add-on board, which I just think stuff like that is super cool. That's cool. Yeah, there's just a lot of rabbit holes to go down there. Oh, absolutely. I think the ceiling fan is like a unique home automation problem. I mean, they you can buy home kit like enabled ceiling fans, but they're mm-hmm. very limited ones and may not yep. look the way you want it to look nope. or be very expensive. <laughs> Certainly not. And plus, this is a porch, so I needed something that was like damp capable. You know, it's a covered porch, but nevertheless, y- you need something that's able to be outdoors. And certainly the the three or four fans that are on the market today that are HomeKit capable, I'm not sure if any of them were damp rated. And even if they were, you hit the nail on the head. They just were not aesthetically what I was going for. So instead, I bought these these fans that I really love aesthetically, but don't work with the home automation that I wanted. So I've created a different set of problems for myself, and we'll see where I where I end up. You could just do it uh, old school, or like it was done in Ferris Bueller, where you just have a bunch of strings. Yeah, and they're right. like that's running what, around and so you can do. sit in your chair and pull the string and the fan comes on. You can always, always go that route. Well, that's the thing is like, if I'm really being honest, all of this is in the effort of not having to get off my hindquarters and walk literally eight feet over to the switch. Like th- hey, this, you're this on the really porch, dumb, you know, I get uh, but, it. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I'm, I'm sipping a, a beverage, be that, you know, some a diet Coke or something stronger. And I just don't feel like standing up right this minute, but I'm a little bit too warm. I just want to be able to grab my phone and turn the fan up. Is that so much to ask, gentlemen? Is that really too much to ask? Well, I mean, how much of the uh, of the development of our species is grounded on the fact that we're inherently lazy? I mean, let's <laughs> exactly just, let's right. Let's say uh, you're, you're helping out. That's yeah, exactly so, right. I, I, I'm t- tempted to go down the Raspberry Pi uh, rabbit hole because I've got this pet project in my mind and this is where the audience rolls their eyes, but I actually want to build a moisture evaporator in my backyard. It's a, uh, it's a prop from star Wars. And if you look at them, they've got all these buttons that like light up randomly. And I feel like a raspberry Pi would probably be a way to just like oh, fire yeah. off a bunch of random LEDs and maybe I know there's some Bluetooth components with them. So I could like start it up with Bluetooth. I, yep, yep, yep. I don't know. I'm starting to like collect links, but I haven't got any further than that. If someone at home is listening and they want to get started with this stuff, where would you recommend they start? Yeah, I think the easiest thing to do is to get a starter kit, which is what I did for my very first one. The particular one I used was the Canna Kit, C-A-N-A-K-I-T, and I'll, I'll give you guys a link for the show notes. And this includes not only the board, but it includes a fan, which you don't absolutely need, but it can't hurt. It includes a power supply. It includes a SD card because they don't have a hard drive in the traditional sense. They run their operating system off of an SD card. Um, I believe it has a couple of the uh, HDMI cables to go from like micro HDMI or whatever it is to an to a traditional HDMI you'd plug into a monitor or TV. Uh, it has a power switch because generally speaking, these don't even have a power switch. It just if it's plugged in, it's on, and if it's if you take out the power, it's off. And so um, that's what I would recommend. It is a little more expensive than I think I was saying earlier. So the starter kit, which with the eight gig RAM. Raspberry Pi is $120 with four gig Raspberry Pi. It's a hundred dollars. And then if you're willing, you can do a two gig Raspberry Pi and that's $90. And granted, you know, around a hundred dollars, that's not a little bit of money. That's kind of a lot of money, but considering how expensive all the other different toys and things we've been talking about on this episode are, you know, even a, a Mac mini is a heck of a lot more than $120. So this is a really, really affordable way to try to do, to try to tinker with stuff. And even if you're out 120 bucks and you don't really accomplish anything, 
I would argue that all the tinkering you'll you'll be doing is worth the price of admission right there because it's just so fun and it's such a great way, especially as a guy who doesn't really do much with his hands. It's such a great way to to see and tangibly feel what you're doing, and it's so much fun. I want to tell you real quick about another podcast here on Relay FM that you should really check out. It's by our friend Shelly Brisbane. Shelly was just on the show uh, a little while ago, and she has a show called Parallel. Accessibility in tech has come a long way in the past few years. OSs can speak, display high contrast text, and support alternative ways to touch the screen or move around it. The big players in the tech space now speak regularly about their access efforts. But are those efforts and all that software any good? Well, this is where Shelley comes in. She's a journalist and accessibility expert, and she puts accessibility into the larger context. She has guests on to talk about devices and software. It's really a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkled on top. So go check it out uh, anywhere you listen to your podcast. You can find it on the website at relay.fm slash parallel. You're really going to love it. Shelly is the best, and I don't miss an episode. So at the end of our interview episodes, we love talking about some favorite apps and services that maybe haven't come up yet. Uh, anything come to mind for you, Casey? You know, I <laughs> I mentioned my co-host, Mike Hurley, several times during this episode. I am not one to really do much with like time tracking or even to-do management or anything like that. Uh, I'm more closer to the Jason Snell school of thought, which is if I need to worry about something, just put it on the darn calendar and it'll get worried about when I need to. That being said, Mike, over the course of years, had been beating me up about using the app Do, D-U-E. And I have found that that is, for me, the correct amount of task management because what Do does, and I'm sure you guys have talked about it at some point, but what Do does is it just nags you incessantly until you've completed something. And on the surface, this is great for like, oh, it's Friday morning, time to take out the trash. Or, oh, it's every morning, you need to take your pills. But what I really love it for is silly things that I don't want to do right this second, but I don't really have a bucket for where I need, or for, for a reminder to do it later. So as, a, as an example, there's a friend of mine who's going to be in the area in the next couple of weeks and he had asked if, you know, maybe we could get coffee. And at the time, I, I wasn't in a position that I could, like, f- get out my calendar and figure out w- when that would work between the two of us. So what I did was I put a reminder and do, oh, I need to go figure out when I'm going to be able to go get coffee with him, you know, tomorrow morning when I know I'm going to have more time to do that. And tomorrow morning, it'll nag me and say, hey, it's time to figure out that coffee date. And then it, then it's done. And then I cross it off and then I'm done. And I really, really like that. It, 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 for me, as someone who doesn't really believe in like the omni-focus side of the world or things or to-doist or to-doist <laughs> or anything like that, um, I, for me, it's the right amount of to-do management. So I, I really recommend do. And then something that's a little bit newer, um, you guys may have heard of or perhaps even talked about BitBar back in the day. And what this is, is for the Mac, it's a way to get little shell scripts, so little command, you know, little scripts and have them emit information that then is put on your menu bar. So it lives next to your phone and your Wi-Fi meter and so on and so forth. And recently, uh, someone whose name escapes me, and I'm so sorry, but someone rebuilt BitBar using modern technologies like Swift and so on and so forth. And so now there's an equivalent called SwiftBar, S-W-I-F-T-B-A-R. And again, what it lets you do is put little scripts on your menu bar. So uh, as an example, just because I could, I have a lock 
uh, on my menu bar when the garage is closed and I have an unlock you know, icon on my menu bar when the garage is open. Do I need that? No more than I need that bedside LED, but I like it. So there it is. Um, I also have some other stuff like um, our current membership count from, from ATP, you know, how many members we have. Um, I feel like there's one or two others, but I don't, can't think of any off the top of my head, but you know, you can put little tidbits of information in your menu bar and it's really, really nice to have stuff at a glance like that. Maybe it's, uh, it, it all, the genesis of this was like Bitcoin prices. I don't do cryptocurrency, but you could have a stock price in there or you can have your local weather. I think that's what Jason Snell is doing. He has his local weather stations, uh, temperature in his menu bar. And I just think that's super duper cool. Uh, so I, I definitely recommend both do and swift bar swift bar is free and open source do I think is a subscription now. Um, but it's not terribly expensive. So an, an app that I wanted to tell you about, uh, mm. this is, was reviewed over on Mac stories, uh, a few weeks ago. And I finally got around to playing with it this weekend is home paper. Uh, so Aaron Pierce is a developer. He did home run home pass home cam, these sort of home kit apps that, extend on what HomeKit and the Home app can do itself. Uh, but HomePaper lets you set custom or create custom wallpapers per room because the Home oh, app comes nice. with three or four. Mm-hmm. And if you look at this, you can take a picture or you can use Unsplash and search for an image and then apply a gradient to it. So the the image of your room is kind of in the upper left-hand corner it's got a nice gradient, so you can have rooms be different colors. And I spent maybe 45 minutes this weekend, like, <laughs> walking around my house, taking a bunch of pictures, picking the colors I want, and now my home app is beautiful. Oh, I, I need to get on this. this. This is a very great pick. Yeah, I've, I've, I've really been amused by HomeKit. It's got foibles, as with so much Apple stuff these days. It's not perfect, but I really, really enjoy it. And and once you find technology like these Lutron Caseta switches, which are not cheap, but so far have been bulletproof, once you get stuff that works really well, it is really nice to have all that at your fingertips right on your phone and accessible via um, voice command. So, yeah, I'm definitely going to have to check this out. So Home Paper, that's very mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, it's great. It's it's free for one room. And then I think it's like a one, it's a one time unlock to do unlimited and you can do both iPhone and iPad size wallpapers because nice. HomeKit doesn't sync those background images for some reason. Oh, wonderful. I um I'll tell you, Casey, you will not regret spending money on those Lutron Caseta technologies oh, yeah. because mm-hmm. for me it was like a watershed moment. It was the it was the point between when my family hated home automation and the time they started liking and using it. Once yep. you put switches in the wall. Yep, that's exactly right. And that that's something that I strongly agree. It was Quinn Nelson, right, that had done that video recently about how if you're going to do, you know, home automation or home kit sort of stuff, you really need to retain physical switches for all these things. And I could not agree more. And because of that, I've been looking at like Caseta and stuff like that. And and so far, I've only got a couple of these switches, but they have been absolutely rock solid, no problems whatsoever. And I really, really have been liking them. Uh, and I and I really recommend them, despite them being quite expensive. But, you know, now I've gotten the like taste of the good life. And so now I'm looking at all of these light switches and and our house was built in the late nineties. And so we have, I think they're called toggle switches, but they're, you know, the, the stereotypical American light switch, which is something you can grab onto and flip up or flip down. But these casetas look more like, um, like designer or like paddle switches, you know, the more fancy looking ones. And so now I'm looking at all my light switches and I'm thinking to myself, well, I should just make all of my light switches in the house be the rocker style. But then if I'm doing that, 
what do I want to be on HomeKit and what do I not? And so now I'm like, I'm looking, I'm staring down the pipe of a like 6,000, figuratively speaking, $6,000 Caseta bill as I'm like rewiring the entire <laughs> house with Caseta switches. I think I'm going to, I think there's only like five or six, maybe, maybe 10 at most that I can think of that I really, really would want on HomeKit. But I'm certainly I've got like, you know, the the face, the the starry eyed face emoji right now looking at all these switches that I want to at least update and potentially even switch over to Caseta. You know, I did it just over the course of like a year. And like yeah. every time I would I would want to, you know, buy myself a present, I'd spend 50 bucks and buy another one, you know, yep. and yep. it was it was it didn't take that long to get what you need set up. Yeah. And, and there's still several switches in my house that are not on Caseta, but but all the ones I really need are there, and it, it's awesome. Yeah, like I said, the problem, though, is that the Casetas are they're not aesthetically perfect, but they're a lot prettier than the little grabby things that I have. And now that I've got the screened-in porch stuff, which is this new addition, now that I've got that all on the like fancy-looking switches, now I feel like all the other switches in the house are just staring me in the face saying, okay, it's time to update us time to update us and the good news is like a non-smart flappy or flapper switch or designer switch toggles or paddle switch whatever it's called it's like literally two dollars to get a not smart one so it's not like it's breaking the bank to update all these but if as i as i look at them and think "Ooh, that would be nice to have on HomeKit," that's when it starts getting real expensive real fast you know what else is really cool that i recently bought i haven't mentioned this on the show is i bought some of these flick.io switches are you familiar with these no i'm not is it f-l-i-c-k or f-l-i-k it is f-l-i-c.io oh okay okay and um it's the size of maybe a little bit bigger than a quarter Mm -hmm. and it's just a button and you can press it once you can press it twice or you can long press it and like I put one on the underside of my desk and now I've got all these Caseta switches and all these lights hooked up when I'm sitting at my, at my studio and I want to turn lights on, I just reach under the desk and push a button. Oh, that's like very the, cool. It's like the button that the tailor does when the guy wants to rob the bank, you know, it's like that, <laughs> but it turns my lights on, you know? And then like, so I've got a couple of them like strategically placed around the house and I like it when all the stuff starts tying together. And these are really nice little switches. You can stick to almost anything. That is super cool. So the starter kit for this is three of these little buttons and I guess the little hub that you need. And that's yeah. uh, that's anywhere between $160 and $200. It looks like they're on sale at the moment. But that That's super cool. I, I don't need to know about this because I'm already looking at many things that I want to do to the house. I don't need new toys. But this looks super cool. And, and that's the thing is I keep saying home automation, but I haven't really done very much at all with automation. You know, I, there's not much that my house does based on time or based on where we are or anything like that. But once I get my like switch situation squared away, I really think I want to start looking at, you know, when we all leave the house, turn things off or at, at certain times of day, turn things on and, and things of that nature. So over time, I think I will go more into the automation side of home automation rather than just having things that you can shout into the air to turn on and off. Yeah, like one of these flick switches I put on the inside of the drawer on my bedside table but it's like the panic button oh, that's if, if, during cool. the night. I want to, I hear something or whatever. I can just open the drawer, push one button, turns like all the lights on in the house, except the bedrooms. And, yeah. um, then I can go downstairs to a well-lit house as opposed to a dark house. <laughs> yeah, I dig that. That's super cool. Well, Casey Liss, I'm so glad you came back on the show and updated us with all your 
your Apple gear. Maybe the next time we have you on, you'll actually own some Apple silicone and we can talk about that. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be my hope. I mean, certainly, I, like I said, I think this might year be a very expensive year for my LLC as I update all of these different computers and so on. But, you know, it's a good problem to have. I'm, I'm very lucky that that's something I'm thinking about doing, even though I'm looking at this bill and thinking, oh, gosh. <laughs> so. And I'm just so happy to to see that you're enjoying life, making your apps. I'm looking forward to see what you have next. Uh, where should people go if they want to follow you, Casey? Sure. So I'm on the web at CaseyList.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at CaseyList. On Instagram is CaseyList. You can find my other show here on Relay, which is Analog, with uh, my dear friend Mike Hurley, uh, where ostensibly we're talking about where our digital lives and real lives intersect. Although at this point, I think it's just become like the two of us chatting once a month and, and, and releasing it to the wild, um, which is not a very good elevator pitch. I'll be the first to admit, but it is a lot of fun. And I think it's it, it, if you like MPU, you're, there's a decent chance you'd like that. Uh, and yeah, basically, uh, Casey lists anywhere or, oh, and my other show is, uh, ATP, the accidental tech podcast, which is at ATP.FM. Well, thanks Casey. We are the Mac power users. You can find us at relay.fm slash MPU. Thanks to our sponsors, smile, rogue amoeba and Squarespace. We'll see you next week.